Hey, everybody. How many people actually know what Bleacher Report is here? Wow, wow. A lot of, a lot of BR fans. So I'm going to show a quick video just to showcase some of the social highlights that we have, uh, and then we'll, we'll sort of get into it. Ignition sequence start. expect from this session. We're going to quickly go over what Bleacher Report is. We'll take a quick journey through the evolution of our stack and why AWS, Elastic Beanstalk, and Docker work for us. And uh, we'll go over a little bit of our usage of AWS, Elastic Beanstalk. We'll also do a quick case study comparison to sort of see the before and after effects of it. And we're going to talk in real quick, uh, real briefly about uh, what the architecture is going to go in the future. So who we are, uh, this is a quick shot in our SF office. Uh, these are all our content people that are feverishly giving you like the latest news, the latest updates, the push notifications. They get, a, they get to just watch sports all day as their job. It's, it's pretty great. Um, all the little things you can see, we have a little custom CMS for them. It's all powered by Elastic Beanstalk. So we're a leader in sports, lead, uh, sports media, uh, real-time social for sports content. We reach over 250 million people every month. Our web averages about 50 million uniques. But what's really, really important to us is that our app, you know, 15 million downloads just this year, and we average 230 minutes per unique each month, so we're the number one sports app. So what makes us different, right? We're an industry trendsetter. We seamlessly meld personalized, in-depth sports coverage with content that exudes pop culture relevance. I'm sure you've all seen our posts over Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We also have innovative original content, such as Game of Zones. We also have social media accounts that were just mentioned, and there's millions and millions of followers. So how many people here are still running a monolithic infrastructure? Well, not as many as I thought there would be, but I feel your pain. Like most startups, we build everything on a single code base. Um, this was not ideal, but it really got us going. Compounding this, we also built a lot of our own infrastructure. That means like CloudFormation, EC2. You know, we, we did a lot of the nuts and bolts to get everything running. You know, this worked, but uh, you can really only run with anchor weights for so long, right? So monoliths are very hard to scale. I don't need to tell you guys this. Um, there's merge conflicts, large intertwined code base. You know, it's really hard to learn. Like new employees are easily overwhelmed. Like you bring them in, you dump them this big code base. They're gonna be like, where do I even start, right? Um, continuous deployment is super risky. Um, you, you, there's, no, there's no concept of service contracts in a monolith. 
Um, you're just going to go, oh, I need to make this change, but you might be breaking somebody else's code. So it, it's very hard to scale an engineering organization. So what does this really look like? Um, above, you're going to see what we considered developers. Uh, responsibility, and below, you're going to see uh, the operations responsibility. So this is back in the monolithic stage. So you want a new service. Uh, we, were a, we were a big Ruby shop, and so if you want a new service, you're going to go, hey, you know, I need this new Ruby app. I'm going to take that over to operations and be like, hey, I need this thing built. Let's uh, configure everything, right? And then develop or operations would be, okay, I'm going to install Ruby. I'm going to install well, all the libraries that you need. And as this is sort of happening, uh, two parallel paths of work are sort of happening, and they're, they're sort of divergent. They don't really come together at any given point in time. Um, what really happens is developers would install Ruby on their own, and then they'll play this little game of telephone and have operations try to mimic that on a production system. Uh, if you're a little bit better, um, you, you would use something like Vagrant to at least keep people on the same page, and then you have, like, Chef and whatnot. But still, this wasn't ideal. Um, you end up in this cycle where, like, okay, I think it's working. Let's ship some code to it. You know, let's see if it works. And then they'll come back and be like, no, 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 I need this library or I need this configuration changed. Um, this, this is a vicious cycle, and it, it's super inefficient. Um, sometimes it could take two to three days to even get a new service going. Um, when we finally finish this loop, we can actually go, hey, we feel pretty confident about this. Let's, let's package this up, build an AMI, and put this in all scaling group and, you know, throw it in cloud formation. So you, as you notice, you see there's a lot of bouncing around and a lot of big steps. And uh, at this point, uh, developers are ready to verify. So this, this isn't ideal, but this worked for us. Uh, we, we were able to get our apps going, but something had to change, right? So let's, let's dive into some of the technologies and sort of what all the different steps of all that was. Um, th that was a really high level. Here's actually what we did. We used Chef. We would configure all the infrastructure with Chef, you know, Ruby installs, MySQL libraries, et cetera. But, uh, after that, we would still need to send this up into S3 and build an AMI. At this point, we would actually go to CloudFormation and uh, make that update onto the autoscaling group. At this point, we're ready to scale in the new instances, and then we would have to actually scale out the old instances as well. And because there's a health check, uh, it would actually take up to two minutes for an instance to be reported healthily. So this is, you know, a long process just to do a simple deploy. And at this point, we're actually finally ready for clients. As you can see, this is you know, way too many steps and way too many things that you have to do, and there's a potential to go wrong at every single step. We, we try to automate it all, but um, we'll see what we can do about that. So I want to bring up something we built. Uh, this isn't too important for you to dive too much into detail, but at the end of the day, we actually built a lot of that tooling, as I sort of mentioned earlier. We would actually want to just configure it with as little... Um, we want to configure this with as little uh, JSON as possible. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you have used CloudFormation, but it's actually pretty cumbersome to go through and write all the different portions of it. So what we did was we, um, the guy who wrote this is actually here. Uh, we wrote a little tool that allows us to take a lot of the different um, parameters and just create a little DSL for it. So this saved a lot of time. This interface is actually quite good, and it made things work uh, without having to go through too much detail. So now that we know that how we used to run things, let's sort of talk a little bit about uh, where we want to be, right? So microservices, you know. We understand the past, let's move forward. Like many other companies at these crossroads, you know, we took the latest buzzword and we, you know, let's run with it. You know, this is going to solve all our problems. You know, let's slay that dragon, break that big monolithic thing into a million little pieces that we can actually handle. 
you know, break services out, remove the complexity, increase code velocity, and we will be able to ramp up new hires faster. And now we're going to have clear ownership of disparate code. However, before we can do any of these things, we sort of have to look at the process that we sort of had before and see if that scales even by going to microservices. So we already went through a little bit about how we ran our infrastructure. Frankly, it, it just didn't work because we wanted to move fast. You know, we were a fast-paced engineering organization. Things were always shifting. We're always trying to stay ahead of the curve. So we had to do a little bit of self-reflection in order to get us, you know, through this transition successfully. So it, it's pretty apparent, you know, ops was becoming a clear bottleneck. And this is not where we want it to be. Infrastructure repository. So all that tooling that we sort of talked about, like the cloud formation, that DSL, all the different things, Chef repository, you know, uh, 182,000 lines, 882. Like, that, that, that's terrible. Um, it takes 23 seconds to clone this off GitHub. But can you imagine being a new developer? You're like, we just hired you to be our new ops guy. Uh, here's how you get started. You clone this monster of a thing. So staging production stacks, right? We had over 600 cloud formation stacks to manage. Yes, we had maybe one or two big monoliths to manage, but, you know, those are broken up into all their own little things. There's one code base, but a lot of different services. There was delayed jobs, schedulers, you know, workers, web app, you know, Redis, et cetera. And our DevOps team at a size was two. It always fluctuated between two and four. This was not like this big operation. Uh, you know, obviously something had to give, and we were always finding fires. This wasn't very good. So we needed change, and we needed to identify what those changes were so we can move on and, and move fast in order to keep up with our competitors. So, also one thing was, it, it, it's just simply too complex, right? So, at this point, you know, the self-reflection is really important. You, you can't really begin to tackle a problem until you've actually understood what your actual problem is. So, one question as, like, as a DevOps engineer you should always ask, or as a good employee, you know, or a good engineer, in the software development lifecycle, where are you most useful? You know? Let's not reinvent the wheel. A lot of things have been commoditized. Every year um, at the reInvent, you learn about all these new tools that sort of obsolete everything else. If you keep doing the things that you know are old and you're wasting your time on old technology, you know, you, you're, you're not taking advantage of things that somebody else is facing the exact same problem and Amazon's gonna solve that for you. So remember to focus on you know, the type of work that is most important to help your business succeed. One thing to really identify as you're doing this process is to identify all the bottlenecks. So I don't know how, how many people here have read The Phoenix Project. Oh, good amount of people. So this is a really great book. Um, it, it's sort of based on manufacturing, but they apply it to an engineering organization. You'll probably get a really great laugh, especially if you've worked in a little more of a traditional uh, engineering organization. It, it really helps you about identifying the bottlenecks and sort of figuring out good ways to, uh, to sort of address them. And more importantly, we really got to keep things simple this time. Uh, one of the biggest problems was Chef, you know, I don't know how many, how many people actually run Chef here. Okay, that number seems to be going down. But uh, one thing that we had as a problem with Chef was 
we couldn't get developers to use it. Um, it firmly became an ops task to do anything with Chef. Um, we really didn't want to be gatekeepers at this point. Uh, we wanted to empower developers to be able to do things themselves. So the lower the barrier of entry, the easier it is to sell this as, a, you know, as something that would actually work. So with all that said, we're now in a phase where uh, Elastic Beanstalk and Docker really work for us. So this sort of happened in a really cool way. Uh, Ops was becoming such a big bottleneck that developers wanted to rebuild that CMS that you sort of saw on that slide that all the content people would be using. What happened was Docker came around. They wanted a way to ship something in Docker. It just so happened that Elastic Beanstalk was around. So they were actually able to get a first revision of that up without much operational help. And, you know, with this, we sort of took that and ran with it because, you know, if, if a developer without a whole lot of intervention was able to get a lot of this stuff going, there's no reason we shouldn't approach this and see if we can make that, that experience even better, right? So I'll talk a little bit about why Elastic Beanstalk and Docker made this possible. Because of the managed service, we also have one infrastructure to rule them all. Um, there's Docker, or sorry, let me back up. There's one infrastructure to rule them all, right? Because now you're shipping Docker containers. Docker is now the unit of deployment, not AMIs. Um, anybody who's built a lot of AMIs knows that, like, no matter how much you optimize for this process, it's always going to take a few minutes to send that up to S3. Um, now we're sort of just going, like, hey, you know, just swap out what you need. Um, your Docker containers can be as lean as possible, and you can actually do, you can move really quickly, and you only have one infrastructure to manage, which is just the Elastic Beanstalk Amazon Linux. You automatically get a multitude of deployment options. You know, you can be rolling that will slowly take instances out and then replace it with the new versions. You can have immutable, which will bring up a whole new set and then retire your old ones. Or you can just do it all at once. That's great for, like, staging environments. When we did deployments in our old infrastructure, we had to actually go and write a lot of our own stuff, make sure there's no downtime, like, write something that actually talks to ELB and removes it while it does a deploy. And this is sort of just given to you as a first-class citizen. This is done in the GUI. You can just click exactly what you want. And the best part of it is all you need to do to get started is just a simple JSON format. And one thing to really keep in mind is if you want to make sure your apps go out fast, you should really utilize the, the Docker layers to make uh, deployments fast. So we'll go into that in a little bit of detail um, about why we want to do that and how we do that. So as mentioned earlier, um, we wanted to shift some of that responsibility a little bit onto devs because we were a small team. We, we couldn't handle everything, and we didn't want to be uh, gatekeepers. So one really big goal out of this by moving to Elastic Beanstalk was we wanted to remove all this unnecessary gating. Um, we shouldn't be preventing people from doing their jobs. We should be empowering them and making them better. We wanted to focus on that tooling to empower and enable developers. Let's talk a little bit of that scaling, right? Think of it as, think of the software development life cycle as a baton race. Um, a really good way to think of this is, how long do you have to run before you hand off to the next person? You know, and sort of where we were at right now was, you know, developers are ready to go, they're ready to hand us the baton, but, you know, as Oz people, we're down tying our shoelaces or something. Um, this wasn't the ideal state to be in, so how, how do we get this better, right? So obviously, if you're using Docker, you want to, build Docker files, we, we, or build Docker images. So at this point, we just had every service represented by a Docker file. And what we really wanted to manage was 
the base Docker files, right? Uh, you can go on Docker Hub, look at these things, and be like, okay, how do I build something with Node? How do I build something with Elixir? How do I build something with Ruby? It's a lot simpler than, like, the old chef cookbooks we were used to that went out of date or some new version and then all these, like, attributes you had to set. You actually had very clear different uh, images that you could pull. Like, I want this version, I'm going to pull this version, this tag. It's a very big difference. So anybody who's used Chef before knows that, like, it's a little cumbersome when you want to, you know, switch between different versions. Um, a lot of this is available on Docker Hub, but we actually pulled that in-house and built something called Shipyard that actually takes all the base Docker files and builds them and puts them in our private registry. The reason we wanted to do that, um, we, we want to own that process for security reasons, like uh, if something changes over time, like if somebody... I know they have the trusted registry now, but if somebody changes a Docker file on Docker Hub and pushes it, we, we don't want to be affected by that. So one thing we really liked before was we, we kept all our infrastructure in source control, and we wanted to continue doing that because it was a good change log. You know who made what change, and this is exactly what you want to do, or else you're not going to know. Cool. So here's uh, one half of what you need to get up and running in uh, Elastic Beanstalk. Uh, with Docker. Uh, this is a single Docker image. You pretty much state where you want to take your, uh, where you want to pull your Docker image. This is using the public repo, uh, but as mentioned earlier, we actually use a private repository. Uh, you state what port your app is listening on. And then you also state any volumes you would like to share out. The reason we sort of share out is uh, container logs and then uh, share it out is because uh, we do centralized logging, and uh, this is an easy way for us to get the logs uh, exposed on a host. So we just use a little EV extension that has something that sends it to our Elk stack. And this is a very useful little tip. Um, you don't actually have to log and talk to the Docker's log daemon. You can actually just expose a port or uh, expose a volume and write all your logs there, and you can also set up log rotation that way. So it's a little more traditional, but uh, we were sort of used to it and comfortable in this method. Um, one last thing that's not listed here, but if you use a private Docker registry, you probably also want to put a little uh, snippet in there for uh, authentication, and you just put that in a little S3 bucket. Now, the other half of what you need to do uh, is pretty simple. It, for us, as I said, if you're a developer, you go in and go, I'm, I'm going to start a new Ruby app, right? Uh, in this case, we're going to get a 2.2.1. Um, we have a lot of these base, uh, base Docker files for everybody to use. All they have to do is uh, uh, create an app folder, copy in their code, get it ready, expose the port, and then start their app. So once again, the reason we do this uh, is because if you build all the base Docker files, uh, it's nice because those are already on a machine after you've done one deploy. Uh, if you're only doing this, you'll see that like the layers that change are only the code changes. So for example, if our code changes are only 30, 40 megabytes, you'll be pulling uh, 30, 40 megabytes versus like the entire Docker image, which could be hundreds. So, under the hood, we really like Elastic Beanstalk because at the end of the day, it's just a wrapper around a lot of the technologies we've been using, um, except it's packaging a nice little thing where we're not writing all the tooling. We're actually using, uh, we're leveraging uh, some tooling that Amazon's already given us. So when we deploy something to uh, Elastic Beanstalk, it creates a cloud, or it goes into S3, and then it sort of triggers a CloudFormation update. So at this point, it doesn't, there's a lot more that sort of happens under the hood, but the things that really matter to us are like CloudWatch, which, you know, if you enable enhanced networking, it gives you a lot of things that aren't normal, uh, normally given to you in uh, EC2 uh, CloudWatch. You get things like disk space and other things like memory usage, et cetera. And then you also get 
all the ELB and everything else under one pane of glass under Elastic Beanstalk. That's a little bit nicer than like having to build your own dashboard, going through everything. Uh, this gives you a very good baseline. So it, it's just sort of given to you out of the box. And I highly recommend, you know, before doing anything else, taking a look at it, if that fits a lot of people's needs. Um, it creates an auto-scaling group, so, you know, if your app crashes or for whatever reason, you'll get, you know, new instances to replace it. And uh, it, it distributes that load for you over with an ELB. So one also thing, like, because everything is cloud formation, um, if you have any issues, you have the ability to sort of trace everything uh, by yourself. So th there have been times where, you know, um, something hadn't gone perfectly well. Um, it's not often, but when we have to, we can actually dive in to the exact backend services. So you can actually take an Elastic Beanstalk stack and then search CloudFormation, which will actually give you all the resources that is created, so like CloudWatch, auto-scaling groups, uh, scale-up policies, et cetera. So if you wanted to do some tooling, like let's say you wanted to do your own custom auto-scaling, because, you know, at CPU and network aren't the ones you want to scale on. You want to scale on a custom metric that you, you sort of manage yourself. Uh, you would need to look up those things. So a quick way to do that would be to go into CloudFormation, look under the resources, and then pull everything up as needed. So let's take a few moments to go over some tips about how to troubleshoot your uh, Elastic Beanstalk stack. Remember, like, it's a great service, but at the end of the day, you own all your infrastructure. So it's really, really important that you uh, take some time and understand how everything sort of works. Um, there's actually a really great blog post um, on our engineering blog about uh, deconstructing a lot of these things, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But in slash opt Elastic Beanstalk, there's a, two folders that are really important the hooks, and the deploy folder. Uh, what you really want to look at is understanding, like, it, at the end of the day, it's really just a deployment tool of shipping Docker containers. So this should be pretty easy. It's all written in Bash. You should go through and sort of understand, like, when I do a deploy, like, what steps are actually happening. This way, you know, if you ever run into errors or issues trying to deploy your app, you actually know what's going on and you know how to sort of uh, work your way around it. And uh, one thing to also keep in mind is uh, since you're running a Docker container, this is for the single Docker container one, uh, your Docker daemon is, uh, your Docker container is daemonized via an upstart job. So let's say your service was a little flappy and then you wanted to at least keep it up for a little bit so you know, you know, what's going on instead of having it always restart and whatever. So what you can actually do is you can go in and look at how they start that job. It's uh, under Etsy, init, EB Docker, just like all the other upstart jobs. But a great one is to just disable it and then uh, do your troubleshooting after that. Um, anybody who's used Elastic Beanstalk knows that there's a great feature that you can go into the logs by just going to the GUI and hitting collect all logs. This is really great, but uh, call me old-fashioned. I actually like to get on the box and tail a log because, you know, a lot of times that's truncated or, you know, if your instance isn't responding or something weird is happening, you want to be able to get on and troubleshoot, you know, as a first line versus waiting for some daemon to pull all your logs for you and then opening in a text editor. That just seems to be too long. So a really important one is the var log, eb-activity log. Um, definitely tail that, especially during a deployment because then you'll see all the steps that are running, all your eb extensions, all your tuning. Um, it's really important to sort of look there. So the last step is uh, a lot of times this is where you would do a lot of your debugging. Uh, when you're shipping a Docker container, you want to know, like, is it running? Is it doing? What's it doing, right? So Docker PS, uh, everyone should know, like, all the Docker processes that are running by that daemon. Uh, that's really important to sort of see at a quick view. Uh, is anything running? Um, a common error is uh, your app will start and then fail immediately. For example, like, 
you, you didn't put in your connection string right for your database. Um, now you're in a point where your app starts and then dies, starts and then dies. Um, how do you know that, that happens? Like Docker's or uh, Elastic Beanstalk logs aren't going to be able to tell you that. You know, you want to get to your application logs. So if you have centralized logging, uh, that, that's one really great way to sort of see that in a single pane of glass. But if not, like let's say you haven't built out infrastructure for centralized logging, um, you can go and do Docker PS-A, which shows even all processes, even ones that have died. And then you can actually do a Docker logs and then just throw that uh, container process in there. When all else fails, um, I sort of mentioned this before, you can trace the CloudFormation stack. Let's say two people were doing a deploy and a configuration change at the same time. It's not likely that it'll allow you to do that. Or somebody was messing around on the back end um, and deleted something manually uh, and caused some issues. Uh, there's been times where someone actually goes in and changes the auto-scaling group outside of Elastic Beanstalk, puts it everything in a weird state. Um, a lot of times you can recover on your own if you knew what went wrong uh, and just look at the CloudFormation events and you'll sort of see, hey, uh, I can't, it's having trouble doing auto-scaling. So you can actually go in and uh, make that change manually on a back end, and, you know, a lot of times the system will just recover. Uh, and uh, once again, this is an Amazon-provided service, so it's highly recommended that if you run into issues that, you know, you can't troubleshoot, don't, you're not alone. Um, the best part is you can open a support ticket, and they will actually help you out. And I, I've actually found that Elastic Beanstalk uh, support has actually been pretty good. So I talked a lot. Let's sort of take a look at the new process. You know, once again, you're a developer, and you want to sort of get things running, right? So we have something that we sort of created. It's sort of called a blueprint. And from there, you sort of just state, like, hey, I want this new environment. I want what autoscaling group or how big of autoscaling group, what I'm going to scale on, um, where I'm going to deploy this. You take that, check it in a Git, and then you go to Jenkins and you hit create environment. We have a tool that's sort of like a one-click um, deployment. And you sort of notice that it's, not, it's no longer you know, an ops or a developer thing. It, it's something that anybody can do. You know, anybody can provision a new environment. Anybody can do things. And now also, you can create that Docker file and ship your code to it. So, as you see, it's a lot more streamlined and it's a lot simpler. Um, we don't need to do everything ourselves and it doesn't need to be an ops task. It doesn't need to be a dev task. The, the reason I place all the swim lanes in the middle is it's really important that we empower everybody and allow everybody to do things. There, there is no ops responsibility. There is no dev responsibility. It, you know, as DevOps, you should really come together and sort of share that responsibility and you know, work together. And that feedback loop that was sort of like, hey, you do this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll sort of try to match what your specs are. No, you can probably sit in a room together, talk about requirements, and in about five minutes, you have an environment up and running. And th that's huge for us, because we, you know, by moving to microservices, we're going to have orders of magnitude more services to manage. And in order to do that, you need to be able to deploy fast. You shouldn't be spending all your time worrying about how you're going to deploy. You should be worrying about your time, how to write the code, how you're going to uh, help your business win. It's not, you know, it's pretty self-apparent that uh, you don't want to spend your time on processes. You want to be spending time writing code. So we're going to go over the technologies that you sort of need to get this to happen. Uh, in our case, all you really need to do, um, create that Docker file. It'll do a build, and it'll push it to our private registry. Uh, this is all handled via Jenkins again. And then you can actually just take that and deploy uh, with the Docker run that AWS is JSON. You take that and you deploy that out. It takes about six minutes, uh, a lot less than what it used to be. 
And at that point, you're sort of done. Uh, and, that, and that's sort of beautiful, you know. Uh, we do a lot of this through a Jenkins pipeline. So you, you notice that there, even though there's three steps, as a developer, you really, after you have everything set up that initial time, you sort of check that to Git, and you go to Jenkins, and you go, like, I want to deploy this app to this environment. And then that's it. Uh, Jenkins will sort of show you in a, a lot of little swim lanes, like, where you are. So one thing to keep in mind is uh, for staging, you probably want to do all at once deploys, which would probably get that down to like two or three minutes because you're not actually replacing any instances or doing any like shuffling of instances to make sure you're up all the time. And the other ones, you probably want to choose a smarter one to prevent downtime. So let's talk a little bit about blueprints, right? Um, what does that sort of mean? Uh, it, it's sort of something that we had a lot of trouble getting people to adopt Chef. Um, it was something that we you know we had to spend a lot of time like, making it immutable, doing all these things to sort of coax it to the right way. Um, our infrastructure code was just humongous, you know. Um, it, it was Chef, CloudFormation, DSLs, everything. So let's simplify that a little bit, you know. It, it's a simple representation of your environment in YAML. Uh, the reason we sort of chose YAML is if you go home and then you install Elastic CLI and you do a config save, it actually gives you the configuration in a little YAML format. So for us, it was like while we were tinkering around, we can get a copy of it in YAML. We're like, hey, if we build a tool, we should just keep it very, very similar. So after we've been tinkering it, we can actually just introduce a tool and it'll be very, very similar. So it directly leverages um, Elastic Beanstalk's API. So when you write your YAML, we take that and then we send that over to API and create everything. So we're really trying to limit the amount of it's really great. They have a really great GUI, but for us, we wanted to change or track changes and make sure that like changes are sort of gone through a process. And it's a little bit hard to like have people going around clicking things and changing things, and we'll never know what broke what if that's sort of happening. So we're sort of creating a process around like, hey, all configuration changes should flow through code, should flow through these uh, blueprints. So one thing as when we moved to microservices is we started using 12-factor apps. And by using 12-factor apps, uh, all environment variables are now the configuration. Um, back in the old days in Chef, we actually had to write default configurations and then you know, set overrides per environment. Um, this is a little more straightforward. If you have an app and then you have these sets of configurations, you sort of just put that in a blueprint and that'll sort of give you what you need. Uh, one thing we really did like about the Chef thing is if you can write a bunch of base configurations and over time, you'd be like, if I'm in this environment, I'm going to override that with a different setting. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more of how we sort of created that kind of process in our new uh, blueprints. So as you sort of seen earlier, uh, we can create an update environment with one click. Uh, what's actually really cool as well is we have sort of a dry run feature that isn't um, a lot. Of, if you work with CloudFormation, one of the coolest new features that they have is sort of like you can do a dry run. You can be like, hey, if we're going to do this new template, what's going to actually happen? What's going to change? And that's really important because if you're making changes, you sort of want to test um, and see what those changes are before you actually do them. So it's, it's also integrated right in Jenkins, a little checkbox. If you make a new configuration and then you want to deploy that out, before you do it, you hit the little checkbox that says, hey, um, I want to actually dry run this. So it'll actually show you in red like what actual configuration is changing. Once again, we're going back to the point is like we really want to know that audit trail. You know, when things change, it should flow through a structured process. You want to hold your infrastructure as code. It's really cool that you can do a lot of things through a GUI, through a CLI, and all those things. But at the end of the day, for you know any any sort of production system, you want to make sure you have that audit trail. And as mentioned earlier, uh, we sort of call this inheritance. We built this into the tool. We don't want to repeat ourselves. Um, 
this is sort of like the configuration changes and also anything that, uh, you know, repeats itself. Because as you build all these different microservices, you're going to have a lot of things like, hey, I'm going to use this subnet. You know, I'm going to use these configuration settings. I'm going to use this security group. Um, it, it gets really tedious and also increases your uh, potential for uh, messing up and fat fingering something if you have the same copy and paste across the board. And it's going to be really hard. And you can either write a different tool that sort of diffs everything on like a wholesale level, but then you end up with that same like 180,000 line code base. Uh, we're really trying to keep things simple and we really don't want to repeat ourselves. We want to just keep it as small as possible. So uh, there's some gotchas. Uh, if you are a 12-factor app, uh, environment variables are configuration. What's nice about it is uh, Elastic Beanstalk supports this off the bat. Um, you can use this really well. Um, but what's sort of scary is if you store all of this in Git, um, this is a really bad thing, right? Like, uh, we use GitHub. So at the end of the day, GitHub's a really big organization, but whenever you farm out something to somebody else, you want to sort of uh, treat it with a little bit of distrust, right? Uh, let's say they get hacked and then all the code base is everywhere. Um, at the end of the day, you don't want your database connection strings and all your uh, secrets to be out. Uh, at, we could have used something a little more heavy-handed, like Amazon's uh, key, like secrets manager, but uh, we decided not to because at the end of the day, all this stuff lives on the... Uh, lives on the Elastic Beanstalk GUI. So we didn't want to do that. So what we actually ended up doing is we encrypted them. Um, this way, at least in Git, it's not stored, but uh, stored in plain text. And what's really important also is don't repeat yourself, right? We sort of went into this a little bit. Uh, the big things we sort of broke out to not repeat ourselves are like common configs. Like if you're in staging, you're in production, you're going to use different subnets and different VPCs. Um, if you have app-specific things, such as like uh, S3 access, like IAM instance profile, you want to sort of group those together because, you know, a cluster of apps are probably going to need the same permissions. You don't need to create a bunch of different profiles for every single microservice. Like if it's a cluster of stuff together, they share a lot of similar things. Like if they need to talk to each other, for example, like a lot of things, you have the same security group and you don't need to repeat yourself a lot of times. And then at the very end, you sort of choose like environment-specific things. Like if you have an SSL cert for this endpoint uh, that you wanted to use, you, you can state that, but you don't have to actually uh, uh, have that at, all the way up. So other things are like special snowflake things. Like let's say I am part of this group, but I also need to add this security group or something else. At the very, very end, uh, you can always override anything um, that is sort of inherited, and that takes precedence over everything. And what's nice about this is uh, you end up with a much shorter blueprint, and it's sort of like your configuration isn't you know bloated, and you're not copy and pasting the same code hundreds of times. And the tooling actually compiles and ships all of this via the API. Uh, you can get the dry run, all those features. And so where we sort of come from is building tools that improve the life of a developer and anybody working in our organization versus, you know, firefighting and managing this tool that really we're the only customers for, right? At the end of the day, as DevOps engineers, our customers sit right next to us and you want them to be successful. What do you do? You, you create tooling for them. And so this is this would not have been possible if we we're fighting fires and still managing all the different components by ourselves. Um, it, Elastic Beanstalk sort of allowed us to do less of the deployment and uh, you know provisioning aspect, and sort of build more on you know custom tooling that makes sense for our uh, organization. So, real quick, we're going to go through you know the decision tree process of making a blueprint. As I sort of mentioned earlier, you know, if you're going to be in production, are you going to be in staging? Um, a lot of times it's like VPC, subnets, some custom tags to make sure that, like, you're allocated to the right resource. And then as you sort of go down, you sort of, you know, break up into these different groups of services. 
So you have a cluster, you know, a lot of times the things that are shared here are like IAM roles, um, security groups, um, once again, some more tagging that would probably be useful for you. And then, you know, at, at the very end is that you have all your little microservices and all your little apps, you know, environment variables, uh, tags, SSL certs, um, all these can be overridden or and be stated uh, at any stage of these, so it's actually really useful. So for example, let's say you, you were creating a really small microservice that was sort of part of like cluster one, and you really had no big changes, your, your blueprint could actually be just like one line or even less. Um, you can get something running, you can create an empty file and this will sort of take it and run. Um, this is really cool. Um, we use it a lot and you know, this is just to prevent people from making mistakes and just to make it like not something really daunting. Like if I wanted to get an environment up and running, let's say you're a new engineer and you wanted just like a small, like a small service that you wanted to run as part of your starter projects. You can get up and running well under 10 minutes. You know, you can copy a Docker file, create a new blueprint, hit a few buttons in Jenkins, you're ready to go. Um, this is huge. You know, it, it took forever to get things before. Um, just cloning that database was 23 or cloning the Git was 23 seconds. That's ridiculous. Uh, we're moving so much faster now that we're uh, able to build all this tooling to make uh, developer lives easier. So we'll take a quick look. This is a really compressed version of what our blueprint looked like. Uh, if anybody's actually worked with Amazon's Elastic Beanstalk's API, this should look pretty familiar because these are just uh, sort of a response. We write everything in Go, so a lot of this was uh, a direct port of the struct. Uh, once we read this in YAML, we'll get this all as a struct. And so the very, very top red stuff are sort of like the application level things, like a database connection string and like what role this app is. Um, the cluster level things are in orange, you know, like what security group, what IAM instance profiles you're gonna use. And then the very last things are like the common things that you know every app is gonna need and you don't wanna be copying that across every microservice and every little thing that you deploy. So like your ELB health check, so you know, if you're in a staging environment, which VPC, et cetera. So once again, these are really slightly, uh, these are abbreviated, but uh, you, you pretty much get the point of why we wanted to do this. Uh, can you imagine like pages of this for every service? It just doesn't scale. So one last thing I sort of want to cover um, is uh, EB extensions. Uh, at the end of the day, once again, you own all your infrastructure, um, and there's no way that Amazon's going to know um, exactly what your workload needs. Um, they're same defaults, but a lot of times you want to be able to build something that scales. You know, so we'll go over some of the ones that we use. Uh, we tune our apps for higher concurrency, so we actually go into SysCTL and change like the max connections, our network uh, settings, and how many connections we can actually open and open file descriptors, et cetera. We actually install a local private uh, Docker registry. I don't know how many people run their own registry, but for us, it, it made a lot of sense to sort of do this. What we really do actually is we take that Docker binary and created our own upstart job. So we actually have a decentralized Docker registry. Uh, all we really need is for S3 to be up. So it's actually pretty cool. Um, at this point, it's like we, I don't know anybody who, or who here has actually used Docker Hub really, really when they were really young? Anybody? Did you guys experience a lot of downtime when that happened? Yeah, th this is sort of what pushed us toward doing this. Um, by creating this little service that we're able to do, we can actually you know, decentralize that Docker registry. Um, we actually just pull everything from S3. So as long as S3 is up, we're good. Uh, we also install all our monitoring tools. Uh, we actually use Datadog a lot. So uh, the agent gets installed via this. And we also install uh, Nginx tuning and core settings. So a lot of this is, uh, as we break up that base into a lot of different disparate services, 
um, we need to be able to do requests across different uh, services. And, you know, all the apps run through Nginx on Elastic Beanstalk with Docker. So we actually went through and uh, added all these core settings via an AB extension. And once again, we install our uh, centralized logging. Uh, we use FileBeat and an Elk stack. So we ship all that off. And uh, we do that through a little EB extension that installs that little daemon that listens for it. One thing to keep in mind about EB extensions is it's not just system level stuff. You can actually do a lot of cool things. Um, you can do custom cloud formation changes. Uh, one big thing that we had was uh, we were an early adopter of Amazon Web Services. And uh, what happened was uh, we had to move all our databases into a VPC so we could start using some of the newer instance sizes. We did that first. And what we actually noticed is hey, we want Classic Link to work for Elastic Beanstalk, but it wasn't a setting that you can actually directly click. So what we did is uh, you can actually create an EB extension that will create a CloudFormation change. And for, in our case, this was to enable Classic Link. But a lot of times, it's as long as it's supported by or CloudFormation, you can actually extend a lot of the functionality that isn't directly built in or exposed via their GUI. This is all still part of that same ecosystem that you can sort of customize as you need. And one, one tip is, even though you can do a lot of this through EB extensions and do it at runtime, the, the most efficient manner to do a lot of this is actually to build that AMI. And you can actually state which AMI I want to use for what service in something like a blueprint. Um, this is really useful because then you're not actually tuning your service and, you know, you get your deploy times down. Um, you can build uh, CloudFormation changes into it, so you'll still have to use EB extensions to some extent, but it, it is pretty useful when you want to go to production to build this into an AMI. That being said, uh, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the before and after. And we have a VPC migration task that, uh, you know, we had to do. We had a lot of microservices. We actually went microservices first and then did our VPC migration, which, you know, sort of shot ourselves in the foot a little bit because now, you know, we have all these different services we needed to uh, migrate over to the VPC. But it also lends itself to a really, really good uh, discussion, right? We can actually do a real comparison because we haven't completely killed a monolith. So we had to migrate those as well. So migrating to legacy apps, it, it took two engineering days, like to retool a lot of the things, rewrite the cloud formation templates, update the tooling, and then uh, add some flags to maintain uh, backwards compatibility because we were doing this piecemeal. We weren't shipping all our things at once. We had to make sure the tooling still worked if we wanted to update something that was old. Uh, we had to do a lot of extensive reg regression testing. So two days, that, that's a long time. So for migrating Elastic Beanstalk apps, this was 30 minutes. And I, I'm... All it really was was reading a lot of documentation about what I needed to change. And it was five lines of blueprints. You, you just add a VPC parameter. So by leveraging a lot of Amazon or AWS-specific infrastructure, you, you can see that it plays really well within that ecosystem without having to, you know, use too much of the API and everything and just leverage what you can. So this is literally what we had to do to migrate our apps to VPC. Uh, state that we wanted to, which VPC we're going to, what subnets, and then what ELB subnets to use. That's it. So here's some comparison by numbers, um, just to sort of show you like how far we've come by doing this. So I, I keep harping on this number, 182,882 lines of code. It, it, it's a lot. Um, and. Uh, we're not completely off of it yet, but I can't wait for that day because just blueprints, like they, they accomplish the same task. Just blueprints is 4,000 lines, you know, 4,000, just a shade under 4,200. 
Our deploy time's on average, um, 35 minutes for the old stuff because of the chef run, the AMI building, like rolling them out, waiting for hell checks to pass. Um, that's about 35 minutes in Elastic Beanstalk. It's about 20 minutes. Um, a lot of this is like building the repo, shipping it out, or building the Docker image, shipping that out. But actually, we do immutable deploys because one of the things is uh, we wanted to bring up a whole new fleet in case something like this is a really cool feature. It, it's relatively new, but uh, it'll bring up a whole new set of uh, instances in a new auto scaling group. And if those pass the hell checks, it will slowly ramp up. It'll actually just launch one instance, test it. If it looks good, it'll launch all the rest. And that's actually why it's 20. Um, if you're really, really good and you want to streamline and you don't care, you have a good process to do things, you can actually get that down as low as three minutes, but for us, it's about 20. So last thing to sort of t look at, uh, tooling code. So a lot of the stuff, such as like our custom tooling that went to the APIs, and then, uh, you know, for us, like what the blueprint stuff was, you know, 12,000 versus just a shade under 6,000 you know, half the code that needs to be written. That, that's ridiculous, right? Um, if you have this much less, you can get so much more done, and you're actually focusing on things that matter. Um, this is huge for us. So key takeaways, um, the numbers show this a lot better, but less code to manage, more infrastructure, fast deployments with a multiple of options. You don't need to sort of build everything yourself, and especially if you launch a parallel stack and use DNS or something else, like a load balancer on your own end, sort of do it, you can make it even faster. For us, it wasn't as important, but it's definitely doable. Um, and you don't have to worry as much about it. A lot less tooling required. You know, we leverage Amazon as rich API ecosystem. Uh, we, we love Amazon's API. Uh, we try to do everything we can through an API, not through the GUI. Like, a lot of times you just, at the end of the day, when you're clicking around in the console, you're actually just calling the API through something else that's sort of given to you. So I've talked a lot. I want to sort of show you that uh, there's no live demo today, but uh, I have on our uh, GitHub, something you can clone and try. Um, this is a simple single Docker app. Uh, it has an EB extension that kernel tunes something for high network concurrency. And this isn't our blueprints, but this is more of what Amazon's config is. So you can actually look at it and use Amazon's tool directly. And you can see what we based off our, our tool off of. It isn't that complicated to write yourself. Um, read the readme for a lot more details. Um, but you should be up and running within five minutes. It creates a little Wiremock instance that uh, allows you to sort of uh, respond on slash hello. Uh, what we use Wiremock for is as we started moving toward all these different microservices, um, we wanted to be able to synthetically benchmark and know the service limits for all these different services because we wanted to know when something was going to fall over, when we needed to scale, and whatnot. So we use Wiremock to actually mock out all the dependent services. So this is actually a really cool project to sort of take this, and maybe this is your first Elastic Beanstalk app, maybe not, but you can actually use this very useful within your engineering organization by like mocking out all the dependent calls, and then when you do a load test, you know that like if I scale the Elastic Beanstalk thing pr properly, um, I know that this app can do 5,000 concurrence before it falls over or something like that. And that's really, really useful, because then uh, you know that like if you can send that to CloudWatch, you know that like around two or 3,000 average um, you want to scale up. And what's also cool is uh, what we've recently built as well is when we scale out the main service, we also uh, scale out all the dependent services. So, you know, Wiremock's a really cool tool to sort of isolate what you need. So, yeah, try it for yourself. So where do we go from here? Uh, you know, today we're uh, two monoliths, and... We're actually up to 26 microservices. That's not counting all the different staging environments, integration environments. This is, we've come pretty far, uh, and we're only growing. Uh, we're going to have more microservices as we go. The time to service online is actually down more than 300%. 
um, this is huge. You know, um, we don't want that baton to drop. Uh, like this is really, really important that you know that handoff is clean, smooth, and people can get going. So. A big takeaway is Elastic Beanstalk allows us to focus on the tooling and what's important for our business and not the firefighting. Uh, it, it's really hard to retain good ops engineers if they're just firefighting all the time. They're going to get fed up and they're going to, you know, move on. So tomorrow, you know, where we go for in the future, right? We're going to iterate on that tooling to continue to reduce that barrier of entry. Uh, we're pretty happy where we are, but, I mean, there's always room for improvement. I, I see a lot of cool things we can still do. And what's nice about this is we're now focusing on things that help us win. Um, some technologies we're, we're keeping a close eye on. Uh, ECS, right now, as we mentioned, we're using single Docker images, so we can figure out service limits and all that stuff very clearly. Uh, but ECS will really help us save on the spend side, because as we get container density, um, you know, we're going to run all our instances hotter, because uh, especially since we use uh, Elixir for a lot of our apps, um, it's very high concurrency, very low CPU usage. We can actually overload that machine more than we can actually uh, throw enough load at it. So multi-container Elastic Beanstalk, which is based on ECS, is also an option. But I mean, the holy grail, as, uh, as you've seen a lot through the keynotes and everything else, you know, serverless, where we don't run anything at all. We manage just the software delivery lifecycle, and then we can just figure out how to get our apps running without running the servers. Um, so like Lambda, API Gateway. So takeaways, as I keep mentioning, focus on what's important to help your business win. That, that's the biggest thing you can do for your company. Uh, ownership of infrastructure is really important, but really manage only what you have to. Stand on the shoulder of giants. Don't reinvent the wheel. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's out there. Just like you wouldn't write your own Linux kernel, you wouldn't write your own load balancer. I mean, go out and see if there's something out there. It might not even necessarily be Amazon. Just like um, HashiCorp has a bunch of things in that space as well. Uh, you wouldn't write a lot of that stuff. Make sure you go out and see what you have. So identify your needs and address those. Minimize situations that lead to bottlenecks. So as you sort of go through this process, you're going to sort of see that, like, certain parts of it are inefficient, and that's what you actually need to focus on. Let's say you still are on a monolith. If there's other things that are more pressing, like, let's figure out what those bottlenecks are and scale those first. And complexity is really, really bad. Um, monoliths lead to complexity, but as you build your new uh, microservices, you want to make sure that you keep things simple and it's easy to digest and people are willing to, you know, adopt it because it's easy. And that's really all I have. Uh, we are hiring. Uh, if we do have some time uh, for Q&A, so if you want, you can come up to the podium or uh, the microphone over there and you can ask some questions. Nobody? Thanks.